Hello, and welcome to Historically Speaking, uncommon history with an unconventional pair. I'm Rebecca Robbins. And I'm Kim Kimmel. I'm a singer and actress. And I'm a retired history teacher. He was my history teacher in college. And now we've been married for 21 years. (laughs) Sometimes quirky, sometimes obscure. But this is the kind of history you actually want to remember. Hello, and welcome to episode 19 of Historically Speaking Podcast. As of our last episode, we thought this was going to be episode 20, but someone was mistaken and not corrected by her partner. Oh, who could that be? I can't imagine who that was. So (laughs) in reality, this is definitely episode 19. And it was all my fault. It was. You should have said, no, you're wrong. Yes. Because everybody loves being told they're wrong. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So actually, I know we're joking right now, but this is kind of a serious topic. Oh, very serious. Uh, and it's it's one mm. that affects us still today because there's so mm. many people on the radio, on celebrities, news t- commentators saying, oh, socialism's great. It's wonderful. Or this is how Hitler came into power. So we wanted to take a closer look at that. Yes. So how did it happen, Mr. Kimmel? Well, we're dealing with the origins of Nazism and the Nazi party. In January of 1919, two individuals named Anton Drexler, who was a locksmith, and Carl Herrera, who was a journalist, came together and formed the German Workers' Party. Now, just to put this in the proper setting, in January of 1919, by that time, uh, Germany had been defeated in World War One. Germany was declared a republic on November 9th, 1918. And two days later, it signed the armistice, which ended World War One. Okay. So the Republic of Germany was two days old when the war came to an end. Many Germans were devastated by the loss. The lie... The loss la- of the war, you mean? Yeah, the loss of the war. The lie later grew extensively that the German military didn't lose the war, that they were stabbed in the back by politicians or by the Jews or whoever. But in fact, the German military did lose the war and Ludendorff and Hindenburg, the two chief generals for the uh, the German armed forces, admitted as much and prevailed upon the Kaiser to, well, Ludendorff at least did, to abdicate. And the Republic was declared that very day. And two days later, so he did abdicate. He did abdicate. Uh, the Kaiser would live the rest of his sorry life in an obscure place in the Netherlands, never to return to Germany. Oh, so he just hightailed it out of there. Well, there were uh, many efforts to get him tried for war crimes, but that never oh, happened. Oh, that's why he hightailed it out of there. Right, but you have to understand in in these in these immediate weeks and months after World War One, Germans were devastated. They had lost the war. And many political organizations arose. I, you could hardly call them parties. Uh, hundreds and hundreds of them. So are so, these just people like in the beer halls, yeah, bemoaning they, the loss they, of the right? War? They come. They come from every trade. And and two of them were Anton Drexler and Karl Herrera, who formed the German Workers Party in January of 1919. Now, it's important to understand Hitler had nothing to do with the formation of this. How old is Hitler at this point? He's 30. 
He was and born. He, had, he had fought in World War One. Yes, and he had won the Iron Cross first class as a corporal. Uh, he was a runner in the trenches during World War One. He was devastated, as millions of Germans were, when the Germans uh, lost the war. And he was still in the army. He first uh, guarded POW camps, and then he was put in the political or education division of the army. But he had nothing to do with the founding of what would eventually become the Nazi Party. Now, this German Workers' Party had less than 100 members. It was just a place. So it's these two guys. Yeah, two guys. An unlikely combination. In Bavaria, uh, in southern Germany, one of hundreds of political organizations. I mean, Germany in November of 1918, December of 1918, January of 1919, February of 1919 was in turmoil. There were revolts, there was a lot of violence, there was depression about the loss of the war, there was confusion. And in the midst of this, this German Workers' Party is formed. So who's in charge of Germany at this point? Uh, What happened was, when the Kaiser abdicated on November 9th, the Republic was declared that day. And when they met at Weimar, they didn't want to meet in Berlin. That was a dangerous place to meet. They met at Weimar to form a new constitution. Friedrich Ebert was named the president of this new German Republic, and Scheidemann was named the first chancellor. But this, this were repu- these military people? No, they weren't military people, but they had the backing of uh, many military people who just wanted to keep order in Germany after the loss of the war. And so uh, these men did the best they could to try to stabilize Germany. But the Republic was born with a great deal of contempt by many Germans. Many wanted still an imperial Germany, a monarchy. Uh, Many felt that uh, Germany had not lost the war, even though they had. And in this milieu, uh, you have all these political organizations being formed, and the German Workers' Party is being formed. Now, Hitler, in September of 1919, this would be about eight months after the German Workers' Party was formed by these two guys, Drexler and Herrera, he was uh, ordered by the German military to attend a meeting of this party because there were so many of these political organizations, many of them were radical, and the German army wanted to keep tabs on all of them. So Hitler was still in the German army, and he was told to attend a meeting of this workers' party, this German workers' party. Just to party. check it out to make Just sure. Just to check it out and so on. Not jobs. That's right. This is in Bavaria, this is in southern Germany. And uh, he went there. He's kind of bored by the meeting. But the next day, he received a postcard saying that he had been made a member of the German Workers' Party. <laughs> Even though he yes. had no interest, would did not apply for membership. And Hitler thought a long time about this. So he decided to go back. And, uh, well, he became a committee member of this German Workers' Party. And this German Workers' Party... Um, by early 1920, had developed a 25-point program. And the points were very muddled, very contradictory. Some of them were socialistic, left-leaning in nature. Some of them were very far-right-leaning in nature. They took on a new name as of April 1st, 1920. They took on a new name. Instead of the German Workers' Party, it became the National Socialist German Workers' Party. Oh, so they got the socialist name in there. That's right. But they also got the national name in there. And this brings up a very important point about this entire political party, which would be known as the Nazi party. And that is that it was so muddled from its outset that it had both right wing and left wing elements in it. 
The national part is right-wing because socialists tend uh, not to like nation-states because they think they keep the working class down. But then you add the socialist part, too. So in the early years of the Nazi party, you had both right-wing and left-wing elements within the party. Now, where did Hitler stand? Hitler was never left-wing. He was always right-wing because the left-wing uh, was very antagonistic to business, to to capitalism, and so on. And Hitler understood very early on that he needed the industrialists for his plans. Oh, because right. he had big plans already, didn't he? He had huge plans. Just a little background on Hitler. He was born in 1889. His father, Alois, died in 1903. His mother died in 1907. His father, interestingly, was born illegitimate in 1837, and his last name was Schickelgruber. <laughs> it just makes you giggle every time you hear it. And it wasn't until he was 39, 40 years old, that someone named Johann Georg Hedler, or at least his brother, maintained that he was the father of Alois Schickelgruber. So Alois Schickelgruber's name was changed to Hitler. And uh, Hitler, by that time, was dead. And when enemies of Hitler found this out, once Hitler started to become popular in the 1920s, they, they kind of made fun of the fact that his real name was Schickelgruber. But he never really went by that name, did he? No, he was born 13 years after his father changed his name from Schickelgruber to Hitler. But just imagine, hail Schickelgruber. <laughs> if only. Because who yeah. would have taken him seriously? No, it would be like something right out of a Charlie Chaplin film. I mean, it wouldn't have made it. But Hitler was never a Schickelgruber. He grew up, uh, he was the third child of his father's third wife. He uh, had two half-siblings from his father's second marriage that lived to adulthood. And he had one full sibling, Paula, from his father's third wife, uh, Hitler's own mother. Okay. And Hitler uh, wanted to be an artist. He applied twice to the Vienna Academy of Art. It's important for our listeners to understand Hitler was not born a German. He was born in Austria. He was born on the border between Germany and Austria. And he spent his early years in Vienna trying to get into the Vienna Academy of Fine Art. He was rejected twice. If only they would have accepted him. Oh, that could have changed all of history. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he was basically a third-rate artist. He did some drawings and so on. Do we have any of those? drawings? Yes, we do. Yeah, oh. we do. And uh, they're okay. That's all they are. They're okay. okay. You can see why he was rejected. He's no Churchill. Uh, well, yeah, he's no Picasso either. <laughs> and uh, so from 19, I mean, after his mother died, he went to Vienna and he was like a vagabond from 1908, 1909 to 1913. Then he moved to Munich. He loved Munich. He hated Vienna. Hitler hated Vienna because there were many Jews there. There were many non-Germans so there. There was an animosity for him. Oh, the anti-Semitism in Hitler came on very, very early on, yes. And so he moves to Munich in 1913. The war breaks out in 1914. He volunteers for a Bavarian regiment. He serves in the war uh, honorably. I mean, he, uh, he won the um, Iron Cross first class, which was unusual for a, a corporal. But then he was devastated, as so many Germans were, when... Germany so he lost was the war. For yeah, and he didn't know what he was going to do after the war. So he was sent by the army to go to this political organization, the German Workers' Party. And he did. And he got this membership the next day. <laughs> and within months, 
he starts to dominate this this party. I mean, he, they put out the 25 points, which are muddled. Some are left wing. Are these from him? Right wing. He worked with Drexler. He worked with Herrera. He worked with others like Dietrich Eckhart, who was a journalist who improved Hitler's grammar and speaking method because he had a very rough rural Austrian uh, accent. And Dietrich Eckhart worked on that with Hitler. Um, there were so other, these points were, were put together by a committee. Yes, and Hitler was very instrumental in these points, but he never really followed them. And the socialistic points in the 25-point program formed in 1920. Now, I, I just want to clarify, these 25 things are are to become a member of the party, or if you were no, this is what member, they stood for. This is what they stood for. I see. Right. Okay, so right. it's their manifesto in a way. It's like a manifesto. Okay. Yeah, right, and it it talked about the importance of a pan-German nation uh, that every all German-speaking people should be in one nation. It of course rejected the Versailles Treaty, which was signed by the Republic against its will in June of 1919 which uh, placed all kind of punitive things upon Germany, the loss of their colonies, uh, loss of territory in Europe, uh, reparations were demanded, the war guilt clause, uh, the Versailles Treaty was detested by Germans, fair or unfair, it was detested by Germans. And in the 25-point program, uh, there was a call for the repudiation of the Versailles Treaty. Uh, So Hitler becomes, by 1921, the leader of this little party, in southern Germany, in Bavaria. It's hardly known outside of Bavaria. And he never, there were elements within this party that were very left-wing, like Ernst Röhm and Gregor Strasser, who wanted a socialistic regime. Hitler never tolerated that aspect of Nazism. He understood that he needed the capitalists, the industrialists, the businessmen, and so on, to back up his cause. And... In fact, his idea of socialism wasn't socialism at all. I just want to read a short passage of what Hitler uh, said in 1922. He said the following, Whoever is prepared to make the national cause his own to such an extent that he knows no higher ideal than the welfare of his nation, whoever has understood our great national anthem, Deutschland über alles, to mean that nothing in the wide world surpasses in his eyes this Germany, people, and land, that man is a socialist. Well, that has nothing to do with socialism. It has everything to do with nationalism. So, and Hitler had a very poor understanding of economics. And whenever the socialistic aspects, the left-wing aspects of nationalism manifested themselves among some of its members, Hitler wanted nothing to do with it. So how did he unify the party then? Well, with difficulty. He had such an enormously... And at this point, it was growing, right? Well, it wasn't growing very fast. I mean, it it was looked upon largely as a joke by most Germans. And this leads me to a a desperate attempt by Hitler and his fellow Nazis in November of 1923. Oh, so they were actually called Nazis. By 1923, yes, right. National Socialist Socialist German Workers' Party was called uh, Nazis. So it's an acronym. Yeah, essentially. And it was derisively meant. By the way, Hitler invoked the swastika as the symbol of the party. The swastika is a symbol that goes back thousands of years to ancient India. Uh, It initially had only positive connotations like harmony, uh, uh, you know, wisdom, things like that. He screwed that up. Yeah, the swastika is done forever. (laughs) 
<laughs> and uh, That's a shame. by early 1923, he was being referred to uh, by fellow party members as Der Fuhrer, the leader. Already. So okay. he, he completely started to dominate this little party that he originally... Even though he's just this little dude who right. was a military mm-hmm. guy right. who has no right. political experience. Well, he had innate political gifts in a malevolent way, but they were extraordinary. And people who heard him speak, and I've spoken to people, probably now deceased, who as children or as very young people heard him speak, said he was mesmerizing as a speaker. He discovered his oratorical abilities very early on. He made a gigantic mistake in late 1923. In November of 1923, he attempted to take over the German government by force. This is known as the Beer Hall Putsch. Okay. Okay. It occurred in Munich. There was an attempt to, uh, it started in a beer hall. That's why it's called. <laughs> I was going to say, all these drunk guys decided right. to take over. And it the was capital. a huge beer hall, like uh, holding 3,000 people and so on. So uh, he and some of his fellow Nazis come in, fire a few shots in the air, say that they're taking over the German government. They, they tried to corral certain Bavarian ministers or government officials. That didn't work. The next, was this a violent attempt? Oh yeah, I mean, it was yeah, it was. So it was, people were being killed in the well, process. Well, uh, not yet, not until the next morning. Oh well, okay. The next morning, they decided to march into uh, into the heart of Munich to take over the government. This is a harebrained scheme, and when crossing a bridge, um, these Nazis, sixteen of them were killed. Hitler fell down, dislocated his shoulder. Uh, he ran away from that incident. Two days later, he was arrested. Uh, eventually, he was brought to trial. Another eight or nine Nazis were, including Ludendorff, who was one of the major generals in World War One, who had joined the Nazi party. And they were tried in 1924, early 1924. And Hitler was found guilty of, of sedition, etc. But he was given a very light sentence, only five years, with the possibility of parole after six months to a year. And he used the trial not as an opportunity to apologize for what he did, but as an opportunity to inveigh against the German Republic, known as the Weimar Republic, saying that... It was that a rallying cry. He, he said he was glad that he did what he did. That, that he that, suffered for his... That he beliefs. suffered. And all, so he was, he, was, he was put in Landsberg prison from April to December of 1924, but he was given a lot of leeway. At the trial, he was allowed to speak as much as he wanted. At Landsberg prison, he was given nice rooms. Why do you think that nice is? View. Because a lot of people sympathized with Hitler. And Hitler became actually very popular. So that actually helped his it actually persona. It actually helped him. And during his nine months in Landsberg prison, he dictated to Rudolf Hess, his secretary, the first of his two volumes, Mein Kampf, My Struggle. I have a copy of it in English. I've tried to read through it. It's very turgid. It's some 700 pages. Is it like stream of consciousness kind of thing? Well, it's very mixed up. I mean, you can read a certain page of it and it makes sense. And then you turn to the next page and it's like, whoa. (laughs) Uh, I mean, Hitler was brilliant, but I think he was also evil and a nut job. So that's not a good combination. But he had a uh, he had a very powerful will and he he drew a correct conclusion from his attempt to overthrow the German government by force in the Beer Hall porch. 
He concluded that he should never again, the Nazi party should never again attempt to overthrow the government by force, that they should enter into the government, become a political party in the Reichstag, in the German parliament, and eventually form a state within a state and rise to power within the context of the Weimar Republican Constitution and then destroy it. It was a it was a sound decision on his part. Never again did he want to try to so take. So we want we want them to want us. Right, and we're not going to try to overthrow the government by force. We're going to follow their rules and we'll destroy them at their own game. Right, at their own game, and that's exactly what he did. Now the Nazi Party in the 1920s was actually going downhill. I mean, in May of 1924, in the Reichstag elections, the Nazi Party got seven percent of the vote. By December of 1924, the month that Hitler was let out of Landsberg prison, it got 3% of the vote. Oh, wow. Uh, so uh, Hitler, and by the way, the Nazi party was temporarily banned after the Beer Hall Putsch, but it was allowed to operate again. And its newspaper, the National Observer, was allowed to operate again by early 1925. But Hitler was largely a joke to many individuals. What uh, changed? Well, what changed was... The Depression. By 1928, the Nazi Party was still just getting 3% of the vote. It was headed to Nowheresville, and then the Depression hit, which was a worldwide, the worldwide depression. American. Right. It started at Wall Street in October depression. of 29. It had a devastating effect. I mean, just to give one example, the second largest bank in Austria collapsed in 1931. There was devastation across across the world. The depression was a worldwide it's phenomenon. Because usually when we think of the depression, we only think of it as an American problem. No, no, it was a worldwide problem. But Hitler took advantage of this. Because people were out of work. People, people needed desperate. security. And just to give you an example with respect to the uh, election process, in 1928, when things were looking better and better for Germany, because they had enlightened statesmen like Gustav Stresemann finally rectifying Germany and extricating it out of the ashes of World War One and making it prosperous, they were still getting 3% of the vote. By September of 1930, the Nazi party was getting 18% of the vote. Wow. By 1932, it was getting 37% of the vote. Wow. That fast. They were yeah. growing that, that quickly. Without the Depression, I think it could be argued, Hitler would have uh, remained, the Nazi Party would have remained a minor political party, mostly centered in southern Germany and Bavaria. The Depression, so without it was the, the people, it was mm -hmm. their desperation that sort of changed their mindset. Most, allowed this to happen. Most people want security over freedom and other things. And Hitler offered them that. And he invaded against the German Republic, the Weimar Republic. He invaded against the Versailles Treaty. He was profoundly anti-Semitic. And that's amazing to me that, that so many people saw that and said, oh, yeah, he's right on. Well, that's, it's interesting you mention that because there's a dichotomy in German society going back centuries, which many historians, Paul Johnson, uh, William Shire, and many others have, have touched upon. There's a part of the German heritage which is noble and wonderful, producing Bach, Beethoven, Schiller, Goethe. But there's another part of the German heritage that produced real nationalists who tended to be very anti-Semitic and very ardently German to a fault, like the philosopher Fichte and uh, Wagner, the great musician, 
the great composer, uh, who was profoundly anti-Semitic and and nationalistic. But why? And and Treitschka, von Treitschka, and uh, and others. I mean, and Nietzsche, the philosopher. I mean, Nietzsche with his uh, Ubermensch, the Superman, etc. So those. There's this dichotomy. There's this struggle within. And is this all over Europe, or is this mainly? This is this is. You can find it to some extent in any nation, but Germany took it to a whole different level. To DEFCON level. Right. I mean, there was a a noble element in the German spirit, and there was a very disturbing element in the German spirit, and so Nazism didn't come out of nowhere. Nazism was born out of this ardent, nationalistic, anti-Semitic element that had existed in Germany for some time. It also had existed in Austria and France and so on. But And the term Aryan was originally a linguistic term, a synonym for Indo-European, as in the Indo-European languages. But eventually the term Aryan, A-R-Y-A-N, was used as a synonym for race, and in this case, the master race, which Hitler really pushed. I wonder where that Klein. came from in him. It came from, I think, a portion... Bo- it's, it's one of those things, which came first, the chicken or the egg. Was he born with that sense? Was he raised with that? Did something happen to him? Did he see It wasn't something? until uh, Hitler uh, spent time in Vienna that he really came to despise Jews. Because Vienna, unlike Munich was a very polyglot, polyethnic place with Jews and Slavs and so on. It wasn't just Jews that Hitler hated. He hated the Slavs as well. Uh, he had a very low opinion of, uh, of the black race. And so Hitler was a racial purist. And you can find that extensively in German history. So there's a debate among scholars as to whether Nazism really is an aberration and not indicative of the entire German zeitgeist or Weltanschauung. But there's another scholarly element to say, no, no, Nazism is an inevitable result of this deeply nationalistic, uh, racial, and anti-Semitic element in German history. And our listeners, I think, should realize that there, there is this debate still going on. I mean, is there a fatal flaw in the German character, or are the Germans no more guilty than anyone else of mistakes. I mean, Goethe said that the German individually was wonderful, but in the aggregate was terrible. He also said the Germans make trouble for themselves and everyone else as well. And uh, being half German myself, my great-great-grandfather came from Germany after the 1848 revolutions. I'm only too aware of this uh, just because of my own heritage. There's something very impressive about the Germans, but there's something very disturbing about the Germans. Winston Churchill, being Winston Churchill, put it this way. He said, the damn trouble with the Germans is they're either at your throat or at your feet. So there was this admiration for the Germans, and there was also this hesitation. So I want to get back to the rise, and how did he become? Well, he first he first became extremely dominant in, in this little party, which had only some 25,000 members in 1925. By 1928, it had 100,000, which still wasn't that much. But within that small structure, he became totally dominant. He was der Führer. By 1925, they had started the Heil Hitler Now, was this like an an elected or just understood? No, it was just understood. I mean, he just dominated the party. It wasn't like he hated democracy, by the way. And they were already doing the Heil. Right. 
1925, the Heil Hitler stuff had started, and by 1931, it was compulsory. And that came yeah. out of someone's head pretty quick. And he had he had thugs who helped him, the Sturmabteilung. These are the brown shirts. They were formed in the mid-1920s. This is the SA. I mean, they beat up a lot of people. Uh, Hitler had contempt. So these are political enemies and uh, yeah, they went after, people who spoke out against them. Absolutely. Uh, and then there was Hitler's own personal bodyguard, which was originally started as a subdivision of the SA, the SS, the Schutzstaffel. These are the guys that wore the black. Ugh. Now, just think about this. In 1925, the SS was composed of about 400 individuals, Hitler's bodyguard. That's a lot of people for just one dude. Well, yes, but Hitler did have this. this... Did he have a paranoia, too? I think Hitler had many paranoias. <laughs> I, 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 think, I think he was a walking paranoia. Um, but... The Schutzstaffel, by uh, the time you get into World War II, would climb from some 400 members to almost a million. A million SS members. Yeah, and they would form uh, actually How actual that even military units called the Waffen SS. Just uh, another uh, factor about Hitler, his personal life. He fell deeply in love with his half-niece, Gailey Robel. And there's a lot of questions asked about this and kind of yucky. It's kind of yucky. And then there supposedly was a letter he wrote to her about his sexual preferences. Uh, he thought about marrying her. It's pretty sure. We're pretty sure they. But I don't think the feelings were reciprocated. Oh, right? yes, they were. Oh, she was. She was enamored of her half uncle. And she loved the fact that he was becoming more and more famous, more well-known and so on. But he was completely controlling. He could never allow her to be with other men. He thought she might be having an affair with uh, his chauffeur. And then she wanted to take singing lessons in Vienna because she wanted to go into opera. And he absolutely forbade that. And in September of 1931, at the age of 23, she was found dead. 23? Shot through the heart. Now, it was listed as a suicide, but we don't know. Some thought that Heinrich Himmler had taken over the SS in 1929 was responsible because it was becoming uh, an embarrassing aspect to Hitler's rise to power, being associated with someone so closely related to him, a half-niece. Others thought that Hitler himself killed her. I don't think that occurred, but we'll never know. We don't know for sure. Uh, and the priest, the father Stempfel, that got the letter that revealed Hitler's very weird sexual inclinations. There's a euphemism. <laughs> um, that was purchased for a very high price. And then people that knew about the letter, including the Catholic priest who was pro-Nazi, they would disappear later on. So that was a very, I mean, Hitler almost committed suicide after she died oh, in 1931. If only, yeah, if, if if only, only the art if, school would have taken if only, him. Oh, yeah, if but, right, only he would right, have been so upset right. that he committed suicide himself. Right. When he met with the second president of the Weimar Republic, uh, Paul von Hindenburg, who had been one of the major generals in uh, World War I, uh, he met with him three weeks after his half-niece's death. He could hardly concentrate. Uh, he was still so disturbed uh, by her death. Well, I'm sure there was a little guilt involved, too. Oh, yeah. Although, I wonder if Hitler was the kind of person who would feel guilty about something that he did. I don't know if he felt guilty about that, but he was crushed by her death. It was it was the great loss of his life. And I think uh, if you want to look into Hitler's personality, I think 
part of what you have to do is look into his relationship with his half-niece, Gailey Robel. I think there's a lot of information there for psycho-historians to play around with. And they have. And they have. I'm sure there's books written about that. Yeah. So, just in summary, the Nazi party was really going nowhere in the 1920s. So, how did he reach the pinnacle? Well, after the Depression hit, the Nazi party became much more popular. He gave a lot more speeches. Um, so he's just by, going around the country making speeches. Oh, he's going and, everywhere, right. And and more and more people, I mean, this is a very shrewd man. He's very cunning in many ways. And he says, he, he when he talks to a particular audience, if he's talking to peasants, he tells them what they want to hear. If he's talking to businessmen, he tells them what they want to hear. When he's talking to the army, he tells them what they want to hear. Uh, this is a very shrewd individual. He was a liar. <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> but he would... He, but he knew he, how he, to make people feel good. And he had an uncanny way of determining how another person thought. I mean, he did this with English politicians, French politicians, fellow Nazis, non-Nazis who were German, and so on. Uh, this is a very complex human being. And I think it's a mistake to try to simplify him. Evil as he was, and I think he was evil. I'm just going to say that. I mean, he was, but he was he was he was brilliantly evil, and um, he hated democracy. He spoke against it many times. It's very clear in he Mein Kampf. He hated America. He had a very he had a pretty low opinion of America. He thought America was destined to fall apart eventually because of all its ethnicities. He mentioned uh, how there were too many Negroes in America. Uh, and that would harm America, too, because he had a very low opinion of, of the black race, of, of Jews, of Slavs. He had a low, he had a low When did he think of Asians? Uh, he made an exception for the Japanese. He made them into honorary Aryans. I think that's mostly because uh, by the time he's in power in the 1930s, he had to form pacts with the Japanese. Oh, so he couldn't He could always say too He much. could always, you know, maneuver enough. But there's no question that he thought that the Nordic race, the Aryan race, Germans, Dutch, Danish, Norwegian, Swedish, were superior. So he's gaining popularity. I still don't know how he got to the pinnacle. Well, I think that should come in part two of this podcast. I think by the early 1930s, with Heinrich Brüning as chancellor, things falling apart because of the Depression, political manipulators like Franz von Papen, who really foolishly thought they could control Hitler if they brought him into the government, All right. oh, okay. a, a senile a president in Paul von Hindenburg. All of these things are coming together, which gives Hitler the opportunity in early 1933 to finally become chancellor. So this Austrian... This loser who couldn't even get into art school. Yeah, it's just, I mean, Hitler's rise to power. He had to slip through the cracks and everything had to come together for him to get where he was. But once he did... By How can we keep that from happening ever again? Oh, we can't. We have to be ever vigilant. Liber I mean, there's so many times even here in America where things look bleak. Depression, inflation, what's going to keep that from happening? There's no guarantees.
I mean, uh, if you want to preserve liberty, you have to be ever vigilant. I just want to mention this about the Weimar Republic in closing. It was a very productive time uh, in film, in literature, in oh, theater. Oh, film. That's what's oh, so amazing. The Weimar Republic only lasted a little over 14 years. But, I mean, you had great films like The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, Fritz Lang's Metropolis. Uh, I mean, the, all of the Fritz Lang films. Yeah, The Blue era. Angel. I mean, you had uh, painters. You had a lot of uh, literary individuals. You had, I mean, Alfred Hitchcock studied film in Germany in the 1920s and, and always paid tribute to, uh, to the Germans for what he learned about filmmaking. So it's a very productive time, but it's a very shaky time. And there were many who despised the Weimar Republic, including the Nazis and many others. So complex. It is. But I find it interesting to trace the origins of Nazism and then to ask it, yourself the question. nothing. Well, that's part of the question. Did it come from nothing or is there was Nazism an inevitable result of a fatal flaw in the German character going back centuries? And that is a debate. Yeah, I was going to say that's never on. been answered, has it? No, it's it's debated either way. I mean, William Shire in The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich, which is a great work, takes the point of view that there was a fatal flaw in the German character and that Nazism was the inevitable result of this. Goethe, who died in 1832, felt there was a fatal flaw in the German character and said so on more than one occasion. But there are others who maintain otherwise. Germans are great at many things, whether it's cars, medical instruments, I oh, mean, the cars. list goes on and on. Yeah, I mean, the Germans are an extremely impressive people. They're impressive people, for sure. Uh, right. Perhaps it's the case that great people have great faults. All right. This was fascinating. We could have, like, talked for two hours probably on this topic. Oh, my God, do you think? <laughs> well, you, yes, absolutely. So maybe we will do part two? Yes, I think we ought to do part two uh, and take it from the time that Hitler becomes chancellor in January of 1930 and shuts down everything as far as freedom is concerned and just establishes a police state and concentration camps. All right, stay tuned in the next two weeks for finally episode 20. Yes. Yay. Right. We'll get it right this time. We'll get it right this time. I'll get it right. All right, friends. Thanks for listening, and we will see you very soon. Yes, take care. Goodbye. Well, friends, here we are at the end of the podcast. Be sure to check out the links in the show description to find some of the resources we used for this episode. Also, if you've enjoyed listening, please head over to Apple Podcasts and give us a virtual high five by leaving us a five-star review. We'd really appreciate that. And if you'd like to connect with us directly, you can find us at historicallyspeakingpodcast.com or follow us on Instagram at historicallyspeakingpodcast. That's it for today. And again, thanks for sharing part of your day with us. And remember, if you want to know what the future holds, study the past. <laughs>